Hello and welcome to the EOISS podcast, a conversation on foresight. Today we bring to you a special edition because with me today is Maros Shevchevich. He is the first ever commissioned vice president in charge of strategic foresight. So you are a unicorn in that sense, I could say. Welcome to the podcast, Vice President. You are the first commissioner for foresight. Why now and what does it actually mean? What is your job? And thank you very much for your kind invitation. And Unicorn, it means that uh, these are the businesses who cross the threshold of one billion. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that we are there yet. But why now? I think that uh, indeed our president, Ursula von der Leyen, has good foresight when creating this portfolio because I think that we see today that the world is more volatile, more unpredictable. And I think uh, all good uh, modern political leaders feel that they need better horizon scanning capacity, that they need to work more with a longer term perspective. I know that in politics, a lot of energy goes to the day-to-day -day operations, but I think that the modern leaders realize that they have to think longer, more than one election cycle, because simply the challenges which are ahead of us, from climate change to many other areas, simply requires steps which have to be dealt with right now. But the results we would see in five, 10, 15 years or even longer time range. So I think that was, that was the reason. And I think that President also wanted uh, to have somebody closer to her who can uh, bring the good news, bad news, tell the inconvenient truth, which is sometimes the, the most difficult, and to make the foresight not only the, I would say, academic discipline, but more actionable, more action-oriented. And therefore, when I talk with my colleagues, experts, I'm putting a lot of emphasis on the word strategic, means that it has to have a political relevance and it has to be digestible by the political level. And they have to see it as a relevant and good for their decision making. You just actually touched on it because my next question is, what do you think is good foresight or useful foresight? And I think you, you kind of hinted because technically, you know, horoscopes could be considered foresight, but are they actually that actionable? Are they that useful? So what in your book, what are criteria for a good foresight product from a policymaking point of view? I think the first, and that's uh, something what we are currently struggling with, is that you have wealth of material, I think the potential for foresight in Europe is enormous. And I think what is actually most difficult for us is to sift through th all that information and to filter what, as I said, uh, is uh, politically relevant and what it is. I think that this is the foresight which has a direct link uh, with, um, I would say, the major societal or political uh, or demographic or democratic challenges uh, which lie ahead of us. Because I think that we have to have a vision We have to work for that vision, but to get there, we need to do something which I learned and what uh, the foresight experts describe as a backcasting, where you want to be and how to get there. And very often it takes you 15, 20, 30 or more years to actually go to that level, but we have to have a vision. We have to build different scenarios, as the name of your podcast is, what if, because the things might go wrong, there could be a lot of detours on our way. And therefore, I mean, just to put on table different uh, scenarios, I think it's very helpful for the politicians to be prepared for the unknown, for eventual, and simply really to, to be focused on what should be the end goal, how we want to get to that preferred scenarios uh, we are building for our societies. Can I ask the reverse question? What's bad foresight or what's not useful? What is not useful, and I hope that my academic colleagues will not be angry with me, <laughs> But if you bring excellent uh, scientific work, which is uh, 300 pages long, <laughs> I'm sure that it could be a very solid basis for excellent academic seminar. But I can tell you 100% that it would be very, very exceptional that any of the top political readers would actually read it. And therefore, 
I think that also from this perspective, we need the scientists and we want uh, to base as much of our action uh, as possible on their advice, but they also have to learn how to prepare the product, which is, I would describe as a digestible for the political leaders. I mean, you can imagine how many documents we have to not only read, but to approve, to decide upon and to build the consensus around them. It's, a, it's enormous amount of work. And therefore, what I'm telling to my colleagues, if you need to do this uh, very thorough academic preparation and the result is 300 pages, that's fine. But then think how you can then prepare it into the way that you can kind of capture the attention of the political leaders, explain them why this is important and what you actually recommend uh, that we should do. And I think that's something what uh, I think we need to build across the the Forset community in Europe. So you said, think about the attention. I think that's something that people forget that I think human beings cannot focus on more than five things at the same time. So when you're already, I mean, you're dealing also with Brexit and you have, I'm sure, 15 other things going on. So if I want to catch your attention, it has to be really, really good and also has to be actionable. I think that's something that people forget that if you can't act on it, then probably there's no point in this, which brings me to the psychology of foresight, pessimism, because you said earlier also bearer of bad news or inconvenient truth, but how much pessimism is too much in foresight? Some of the scenarios I'm reading and forecast are, I think, kind of uh, hostage of what I would describe as this intellectual pessimism. Sometimes I think my feeling is that more in the intellectual circles you're moving, more fashionable it is to be as pessimistic as possible. And I definitely don't want our colleagues to present the rosy picture, but I still believe that we as a mankind, we as a, as a Europeans, that we, we are the masters of our own destiny. And a lot of how these scenarios would be good and bad would really depend on what we actually do. So therefore, I think that we have to be sober in our foresight. We have to bring good and uh, bad things. But I would say into the proportion, because I mean, uh, what is very important for the political leaders is also to show uh, the leadership, to present the vision, to work on the on the political democratic support for this vision. I mean, we we cannot achieve anything in democratic societies if we do not have the backing of the people. And it's very difficult to get the backing if you tell them today is bad, but tomorrow it would be worse and the day after tomorrow it would be just total catastrophe. I mean, I never seen a leader, you know, to get <laughs> political support on the basis of uh, this type of foresight. So yeah, let's be, uh, let's be realistic, but let's also use the brilliant scientific minds on how to make things better. Not only to picture that it's inevitably bad, but what can we do? How can we make things better. And I think this is something what I would very much appreciate. And I'm glad that actually the first foresight of uh, this, I would say, let's put it, hopefully it will not sound uh, too unmodestly, this, this new era of foresight in Europe actually came from Spain, because when I was looking at this España 2050 program, that was optimistic program that was based on things that Spain wants to achieve between now and 2050. And let's say in the area of education, And of course, immediately you have a lot of criticism. Is it possible or not? But I very much like the answer of uh, Pedro Sanchez. He said, of course, it's possible because we've done it before. And if we look what we have done as a Europeans over the last 30, 40 years, yeah, I was still studying at the university when we had the Iron Curtain dividing us, when we have totally different economic system. And now we are together. We have the same currency. And lots of things has happened. I would say the quality of well-being and living standards in Europe, it's unparalleled to most parts of the world. 
So we did a lot of good things. So, I mean, we should naturally be optimistic and we should have a positive mind, but not always this is fashionable. So therefore, when I'm talking to my scientists, okay, so now you tell me how bad it is. Now you tell me how we make it better. And that, of course, is a challenge. What's interesting is when you look at surveys on pessimism and optimism in Europe, that the former communist countries actually are more optimistic on average. So maybe it's, it's also to do with where one is from or what has changed in one's lifetime. When you look back at when you were a student, what did you think about the future then? And obviously, what was different about the reality? Just to tell you a very personal story, I'm from Bratislava and I was uh, growing up in a suburb which was like, I would say, two kilometers from the real Iron Curtain. So there was really barbed wire, there was a fence, there had been soldiers, police dogs, uh, watchtowers. And we just took it as a reality. I was passing it by for my sports training session everywhere. It was there since, since I remember. And I saw that there have been lights, cars on the other side of the Danube. And I kind of accepted it as a reality that I would never be able to cross these few hundred meters to go to Austria. At that time, you know, this communist regime was always very much known for the certain irony and what we call the gold bar joke. If somebody overhears you, you can go to jail. <laughs> and <laughs> one of them was that the son is asking his father, staring through that barbed wire, who is behind the bars? And the answer was, us, my son, us. And therefore... <laughs> The reality of today that, of course, now we are in the COVID crisis, but nevertheless, that you even do not slow down your car. You just rush on the highway from one country into another, that it's absolutely normal that our grandmas go for shopping uh, to Austria and Austrian grandmas go for shopping to, to Bratislava, as it was actually in early last century, as my grandma was telling me still, uh, I mean, in uh, the first Czechoslovakia times. That's simply absolutely amazing. And at that time, for me... I wanted to work for diplomacy because I, I thought that that's the only job where you can actually go to some other places than um, to be kind of locked in your country. So therefore, maybe the fact that we could still compare how it was before, how it is now, how the things, despite all the criticism, are changing, that's, I think, uh, why maybe value it more and we believe that we really covered such a distance in uh, 20, 30 years. So we believe that we could do the same in the next 20, 30 years. So maybe that's the reason. That made me think of an anecdote. The first person to run a mile in under four minutes, Roger Bannister, his world record was broken within a few months. And you know the reason why? That nothing had changed other than he had done it. So he had proven it was possible and suddenly everybody knew it was possible. And so the others made it possible too. So I think what, what you're speaking about is understanding that something is feasible Having a vision of where you want to go means that you will end up going there, actually. So it has to do also, you just said you accepted that you would never be able to cross that. But there were lots of others who did not accept that. So the future changed because they didn't accept it. So I think it's quite, there's quite a lot of philosophy and psychology in, in foresight and the future. I agree with you. There is, I think, this very nice saying, I think, of Nelson Mandela. I hope I would quote him correctly because I think he said something like that. A lot of things seem impossible until they are done. And that's exactly, I think, what is so exceptional about the mankind that once you can picture something, you can do that. Yes, no, that's absolutely true. Which brings me actually to doing foresight in a bureaucracy, because foresight has an artistic element, imagination, you just said vision, this is, or not artistic, political, whatever you want to call it. What is challenging about bringing something like foresight into a body like the commission? 
I think that there are several challenges and therefore I think you have to kind of compartmentalize the foresight to be practical from, let's say, different points of view. The one is, I think, what we do in the strategic foresight reports. So this is really longer term. This is about uh, the building of scenarios. This is about the vision which you want to achieve. And then coming back to bureaucracy as such, I think that what is very much appreciated by my colleagues is that when we, for example, deal with better regulation, which is, I would say, the name for how to make laws better, more, more suitable to the current condition, is the future-proofing or what we do. So that from now on, and I think we introduce it as a new style of how we do the impact assessment, how we, how we write the narrative for our legislative proposal that now we always introduce also element of the foresight in it. So there are a few paragraphs on the future. There are a few tables which demonstrate why this is important from the perspective of the, of the future development. We are putting much more emphasis on the need uh, to be able to revise the legislation uh, faster than, than before, because uh, especially if we are dealing with the issues like artificial intelligence, or I would say, uh, for example, critical raw materials, which was, I would say, rather painful lessons we learned that, for example, three years ago, we didn't have lithium on the critical raw materials list of the, uh, of the EU. And uh, this, uh, I would say, foresight approach helps to bring this a little bit more into the perspective. Is what we are putting on the table enough future-proof? Uh, if you are not 100% sure that this element is well covered, shouldn't we have some kind of rendezvous clause that we come back to it in a couple of years to see where the mid technological development or e even political reality would be forcing us to look at it again? And I think and that's, that's a new thing, which I'm glad was very much embraced by our regulatory scrutiny board, our impact assessment bodies and the DGs, and now it's kind of a regular part of when we prepare the legislative proposals. You told me when you started this job, you had to read so many different foresight reports. What are foresight products that you liked or that you have seen that you liked? I mean, obviously, the other ones that you produced yourself, so you can also <laughs> mention those. But And I want to broaden it. It doesn't just have to be foresight. It can also be something more wacky, let's say, science fiction even. What is something that got you to think about the future in a new way? Of course, I like to read. I like to watch different programs, different movies. But from that, starting with the literature, I think that the documents which are coming also from your institutes are always very, very interesting. Or some of the links you are sharing with us from these different uh, world-renowned institutes, because usually... It's, I would say, the length you can manage, you can read it in one go, you doesn't have to do it in several evenings. Usually it's very well focused on what is actually the topic of the interests. Then, of course, for example, the last time I was quite impressed by the article in Financial Times on biohacking. I really didn't know that today somebody, I mean, uh, in its own kitchen can almost change his or her own DNA that the people, because of COVID and availability of these technologies, are cooking their own medicaments, uh, which of course is something which I think didn't see it coming that actually this technology is so available. And if somebody is experimenting on himself or herself, I think it's dangerous enough. But if you start to sell these products, let's say on the internet, we have quite a serious issue here. Or then, of course, very often you have the different news programs where they are, of course, looking at these new technologies, new new challenges, and science fiction, I think it's part of it. As I mentioned a minute ago, if you can picture something, you can actually build it. So I, I remember that uh, when I was uh, 
young, I was a big fan of Star Trek, for example. <laughs> and too. if you if you look at it uh, in retrospective, they had the touch screens, they had iPads, they had the small phones. We've been so much impressed by the doors which got open and closed, and, and <laughs> which is now absolutely, I would say, a part of our life. But it was not the case in seventies or eighties, and I think that. If you kind of like to peek into what the future might be, in a lot of things, you kind of get the dots connected in your mind and uh, it kind of generates the interest, curiosity, and I think you just, you just want to learn more about uh, these things. I have a question about, this is a bit of, not a foresight question, but if you were given the choice now to be able to really see the future, you know, like let's say I'm a Greek god and I'll give you the gift, would you accept it? Would you want to see the future? By nature, I'm a very curious person. But I think maybe I would like to see the future of the world as such, but probably not my personal one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good one. Because very often the people who are believing too much in the horoscopes and so on and so forth, they're so stressed out by that. I think it's actually limiting your free will what to do, because I think, and I see it, uh, I have to say, with my children that very often the wisdom of the parents is good to listen, but you have to make your own mistakes to, yeah. <laughs> to, learn, to learn from them. I mean, in, in most cases, and I think it's the part of being human, human beings that simply we just have to go through that parkour of life ourselves and it kind of forms you as well. Yeah. And that what I find interesting about humans is that we don't like change, but we're very good at it. Yeah. And I think we always underestimate how fast we adapt to things and how we create innovative things out of necessity and, and so forth. So any last advice for anybody wishing to understand the future better? Of course, they should listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> read all <laughs> the reports. <laughs> read, read all the, the reports. And I think to be, I would say, naturally curious and what I think always help. And I'm, I'm talking to the foresight community in Europe because I, I met so many excellent people, very bright, strong academician, uh, excellent, excellent speakers. And, and I know that they do such a good job and they want to see that what they do is actually bringing results that it's reflected in the policy making. And the advice here would be just try to see the report also from the side of decision maker, how useful it could be for, for the minister, for commissioner, for the prime minister how actionable it is, how this helped them to make the point to the public, because I think we need this help. Because today, if you see on the enormous power of the social media, when you see how very often the lack of critical thinking opens the gates to different kinds of fake news, hoaxes, and how dangerous it is for many walks of, of life. So I would say, now talking on, <laughs> on behalf of Many politicians help us to communicate better, to bring the interesting topic to the debate, help us to underpin it by good scientific argumentation. And I think this is the best way how you can be part of how to shape the future. I had an eye-opening experience in 2012 in that sense, because I was arguing with a high-ranking official that Libya would descend into a civil war, because just from what I knew about security, I thought this cannot go right. and. This was in a public setting. So surprisingly, he really pushed back on me and he said, I think you're wrong. I think the Libyans are great, etc." And in hindsight, I realized, okay, in theory, I was right. I won the debate because it, what I predicted came true. But actually, I failed as an advisor to a politician because instead of telling him what could be done, I told him what I think will happen and how he's maybe even responsible for it. So 
I think a good foresighter is not somebody who necessarily predicts what's happening, but who helps the decision maker pick the right choices to actually prevent things from happening. So I think a really good foresighter's future never materializes. Yeah, I think never materialize if it comes to the bad things, but could accelerate the, the, the positive uh, development if you can push it into the right direction. And and I can imagine that the very, very concrete situation, because very often, especially if it comes to the big political themes, big political topics, before the topic becomes big, there is a lot of political energy invested in it. And, and even if you see that something is, is happening the sudden change is very difficult in politics. It usually results in a lot of tension and in, in a lot of problem. And therefore, I think also good foresighters should help us to, to navigate more gradually, I would say, in a more acceptable way. Because, I mean, rough twists and turns are very difficult uh, in the politics and it creates a lot of political tension, which consumes an, a, lot of, a lot of energy. So I, I can imagine the situation you describe. And therefore, to find, I would say, that right way, how to present it, how inconvenient it should be, and what level we should start pushing through some of these new ideas, that's permanent challenge, how to do it in the most efficient way. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, for being our special guest on our podcast. And thanks to you for listening to us. Well, thank you very much, Florence. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. 